Until I get, that's good. Okay. Um, I am going to open us in prayer as we get going. We're in week seven, so we're going to be diving in just a minute. Here we go. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for gathering us here tonight to share a meal, make lots of noise and big messes. It's good to be a family together. Thank you for this. Um, Please help us think well together as we sit under your word. Uh, Thank you for your grace in our lives. Thank you for purchasing us for yourself. Thank you for making us a family. Uh, Open our eyes tonight and help us see that we have many sisters and brothers in this city and region who also belong to you with uh, facing a lot of complications of deep poverty and help us see them as some of us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, on the front page of week seven, this is week seven. Um, We've been looking at what uh, the Bible says about his people and the poor And so tonight on the front of your, of your week seven, start on the front page. I just want to read that first passage to you. If it helps you to know this, Paul wrote the epistle to the Galatians probably in the year 48. Okay? That was before the Jerusalem Council, which is in Acts 15, um, most likely. And, uh, and so here's what he's talking. In this context, Paul's talking about meeting with the other apostles pre that council, and they basically said, yes, Paul, your gospel is the real gospel, and your call is to go to the Gentiles. And we are the gospel, we're the apostles to the Jews, and you're the apostles to the Gentiles, and that's kind of what they agreed on. But they had one thing on top of that they wanted Paul to remember. So when James and Cephas and John, so James, Peter, and John, three big dudes, who seemed to be pillars Perceived the grace of God that was given to me, Paul wrote. They gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. But they had one request. Only they asked us to remember the poor. That's interesting. Yes, we're the apostles of the Jews and you're the apostles of the nations. We have one request that you remember the poor. And Paul says the very thing that frustrated me, and I wish they hadn't brought it up. Oh, sorry, that's what he said. The very thing I was eager to do. Isn't that interesting? Yes, we're the apostles to the Jews in Jerusalem and Judea, and you're the apostle to the nations. We get, that's it. That's God's plan. We agree with you. But there's one thing we want you to do as the apostle of the nations. We want you to remember the poor saints in Jerusalem. And Paul's like, yeah, that's the, the very thing on top of being apostle of the nations that I was eager to do. That sounds like a pretty big priority. Galatians 2.10. Okay, that's in 48. Now in, in the year 57, Paul is writing to the church in Rome. This is super interesting because it's right before he got, he ended up in prison in Rome. This is probably the early, the winter of 57 that Paul is writing to the church in Rome. And later that year, he's going to get arrested in Jerusalem. Why is he arrested in Jerusalem? 
because he took a collection for the poor from all the Gentile churches back to Jerusalem because he was dead set on taking the collection from all these Gentile churches back to the, the Jews who were disinherited because they believed in Jesus. So in, he writes to the Romans before he takes it to Jerusalem, and here's what he says. I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. So what we know is Paul basically wrote a big support letter to the church in Rome. Romans 1 through 16 is a big support letter with a lot of great theology in it. That's what it is. It's a missionary support letter. And what he says to them is, hey, I want to get to you, but I want to go past you. And that's why I'm writing you. I want you to believe this gospel, be reconciled because some things have happened in your history. And I want you to be deepened in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want you to send me on to Spain. I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. The saints here in these contexts means Jews in Jerusalem and the surrounding region who've believed in Jesus and they've become greatly impoverished because of that. A lot of them would have been disinherited because if you're in a Jewish family and you believe that this second-class citizen from Nazareth, from Galilee who was crucified by the Romans, if you believe that guy is actually the Messiah and we don't, we're no longer a family. And that's what happened to a lot of Jews in the first century. Okay, It was very offensive to believe in a crucified by the Romans Messiah. Now, if you met him as the resurrected Lord, it made a lot of sense. Okay, And so the, uh, when people believed in Jesus in the first century, especially in Jewish families, they were often disinherited and poor for other reasons as well. Okay, verse 26. For Macedonia, those are places like Philippi and Thessalonica. Okay, and Achaia, that's places like Corinth. We're going to look a lot at Paul's second letter to Corinth tonight. Places like Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. So um, here we are at the end of Romans, and Paul says, Paul plans to go to Rome. He doesn't plan to go to Rome in chains. He plans to go to Rome and then after Rome to Spain, but he's going to go to Jerusalem first because he's been working with the Gentile churches to collect money from these recently converted Gentiles to take it back to alleviate the poverty of their Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ in Jerusalem. Does everybody understand that big picture? Is that clear? Anybody want to ask a question about that? So basically what we're, what we're saying to be super clear is the Apostle Paul, a Jewish first century Christian understood that Jesus was sending him to be the apostle to the Gentiles, to the nations. And as he goes out and shares the gospel among the Gentiles, people are believing the gospel and getting converted and they're forming churches all around areas outside of Israel. Okay. The Gentiles are getting converted and a major priority for Paul given to him by the other apostles that he was eager to do. And that he wrote about in first Corinthians 16, Galatians 2, Romans 15, and we're going to see two full chapters, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. A major priority for Paul was to share the gospel, form these churches, and then ask those churches to give money back, to take back to the Jerusalem, to meet the needs of their new siblings in Christ Jesus. Okay, so we want to unpack that tonight and understand 
what, what all the priorities were and what was going on, okay? Um, so Paul wrote 2 Corinthians in the year 55-56. So guess what? In, in 48, he writes Galatians, and he's eager to, to collect among the Gentile churches. In 57, he writes the church in Rome. In between there, he writes a couple letters to the church in Corinth. He actually wrote... Uh, the Roman church from Corinth. Um, Okay, so now let's flip over. Um, We've already opened in prayer. So now I want to look at 2 Corinthians. So basically, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9 are all about Paul's collection for the poor in Jerusalem. Okay? Corinth is in a part of the world referred to then as Achaia. It's on the Mediterranean Sea. It kind of sticks down, down between... uh, the eastern part of the Mediterranean, where Jerusalem, you know, where old Israel was, and over further uh, to where Italy was, if you're looking like that. <laughs> uh, it's an isthmus that sticks down in the middle, and that's where Corinth was, uh, a major trade route, this significant city. Okay, so I'm just going to read through Second Corinthians a lot of 8 and 9 with you, and I just want us to see the, the priority Paul has, okay? By the way, these, these passages were chosen, like, back in December. This is an ideal passage to talk about poverty alleviation the week you're sprinting towards your missions festival. God's always making plans better than our plans. So, like, I didn't, I, I didn't think that through. It just happened to happen. So here we go. This is a major missional thrust of the Apostle Paul that includes poverty alleviation from some Christians to other Christians in the midst, in the midst of, God's, of Paul's mission to the nations. Okay, the what? Participating in a relief project. We, Paul's always reeling with his companions, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that's been given among the churches of Macedonia. This would be the church in Philippi, the church in Thessalonica, the church in Berea, places like that that you've read about in Acts and the other letters, okay? In those places, Paul's saying, hey, the grace of God's been operating there, and they are being generous, and look at, the con- look at the description. For in, the word in here means during, a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. The Christians in Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea and Macedonia are in a, in a world of hurt, there's, a, there's some major stuff going on there that's been very painful. They're poor, they're mostly poor, and they've been joyfully giving in generous ways. Verse 3, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. So let's just break it down. This is a harvest of grace. God's grace is at work in them and producing some really powerful stuff. They have terrible circumstances and by the grace of God, some real characters being developed. There's a severe affliction going on. That The severe affliction is not the giving. They're, they're living through a really hard time. Okay, a lot of it was Jewish persecution. So you could read the the letters to the Thessalonians and realize 
Paul is furious for how Jews who've not converted are treating Jews and other Gentiles who have converted. And that's a lot of the tension is there, okay, even in these Gentile cities because there's synagogues there and things like that. So there's a severe affliction going on. They have extreme poverty. And in the midst of that, they have two things, an abundance of joy and a wealth of generosity. Why are you sitting there? You should be falling on the ground. That's crazy, okay? They're in a severe affliction. They're poor people. And what's erupting in them is joy and generosity. It's as though they've heard the gospel and believed it and are moved to live in ways that match the gospel, right? Which we're going to see over and over again in this passage. Okay, Look at their performance in verses 3 and 4. Just to summarize it, they gave, the, they gave beyond their means. It was costly to them. They gave of their own accord. They gave willingly. They weren't, they weren't compelled. Paul didn't say give or else. They earnestly begged to participate in this grace of God that was unfolding. So isn't that amazing? They were, that joy was rippling up in them, and they when they were giving gen- generously, um, it was because, and they, they were begging to participate, okay? So what, what, were they, what were they giving to? These are mostly Gentile and God-fearing new converts, and the Apostle Paul has told them the Messiah of Israel is the Savior of the nations. The God of Israel made heaven and earth, and he made you as well. And you can be rightly related to the, crea- the, the, the false gods that have you run around like crazy in your little towns. They're false gods. There's one true God. He rules over all things, and you've offended him, but God sent his son to pay for your sins. And if you believe in his son, you can be forgiven and be rightly related to the true God of the whole world. And if you live in a culture where there's like 40 idols and you got to go to 80 temples, right? And you get oppressed by people who are priests and people who are powerful. This is all tremendously good news. Paul is telling people, you can be rightfully related to the one true God who made all things because even though you're offensive in your idolatry, uh, you didn't know any better. But now God has sent his son and raised him from the dead and he's going to come back and you can know God and you can belong to God. And he's basically just told them the stuff that we just take for granted all the time. And their response is even though they're getting attacked and they don't have very much, Their response, they're so filled with joy because the gospel is such good news. Their response is to beg. Once once they hear that Gentile churches are giving money back to the church in Jerusalem, where their siblings have been disinherited for their faith in the same Messiah, the same King and Savior and Lord, they're begging to meet the needs of their new family members, who they probably will never meet. That's what this is saying. Right? They just, they're just... They're just moved because God's been so gracious to them and so generous to them. They just want to to bless their their siblings back in Jerusalem, most of whom will never step foot in Jerusalem. But they just want to do it. They want to participate. And one thing they do is send money because it's good to do that. Okay, all right. Now, um, and look at verse 5, their true north. And they did all this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord 
and then by the will of God to us. They understood the true grace of God. And they were like, man, our hearts belong to God. Our lives belong to God. Our resources belong to God. <laughs> oh, there's a need to be met? Can we please help? That, that was their response because they had given themselves to the Lord. That's wonderful. Okay, let's look at the so what. Uh, Paul is talking to the Corinthians. All that right there, just don't miss this. That was all a description of the Macedonian Christians. Paul is writing to people who live in a different region, and he just pumped up the performance of the Macedonians because he wants to motivate <laughs> the Corinthians, right? The Corinthians had said they would participate, but they haven't followed through. So let's look at that. Verse 6, Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among y'all this act of grace. Paul had previously sent Titus to go uh, do some collecting, <laughs> and, uh, and it hadn't worked out so well. So here's what Paul's saying. Y- you wanted to participate. Verse 7, so as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge. Now, don't you remember 1 Corinthians? They were super proud of their faith, of spiffy speakers, and having uh, super special knowledge. He's like, hey, you guys, y'all excel in those things. And earnestness, which is new for them. And in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Not demand, not command, not box-checking obedience. See that you excel also in this grace-drenched, grace-driven act of grace. The Corinthians have begun a collection. Why start a good thing and leave it unfinished? So here's some whys. Now Paul's going to give them some motivators to go on and participate in this, uh, this collection for the poor. Let me pause right here. Is anyone confused about what the collection was or how it worked? Because I want to clear that up. We all good? Super. Going to keep going. All right. Here. Paul is gonna, has a model for them that's even more impressive than the performance of the Macedonians. Paul says, I say this, I'm asking you to complete what you started, not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others, I'm telling you about the Macedonians, that your love also is genuine. And then he just says one of the best gospel lines in the Bible. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might be made rich, might become rich. Does that sound like the gospel to you? <laughs> Does everyone see that that's like a clear description of the gospel of Jesus Christ? He who was all eternally wealthy, who had the highest status, who uh, the, the, the agent of the creation sustainer of all things, who, the, the one for whom all things was made, right? He humbled himself, became part of his creation, was born into a poor family, lived an impoverished life. Foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. 
rode into Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey, was crucified, dead, and buried in a borrowed tomb. His clothes were stripped from him on the cross, and people, you know, bartered for his garments. He who was rich for your sake became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And that become rich there, of course, means forever and ever and ever. So Paul here is just doing straight gospel work, right? I mean, he's trying to motivate them. He's not giving them an order or command. He's just showing them how well they've been loved. And he's trying to motivate them to respond to being loved phenomenally well. Um, Okay, so, and there's another reason he's not done motivating them. (laughs) So uh, Paul is a good preacher. Hey, the Macedonians are doing great. Sounds good, doesn't it? What a great example. Uh, Hey, remember what Jesus did? His next motivator is, this is good for you. I love that. And this is, might be where the rubber meets the road for us. Do we believe this next section? This, being generous to others, is good for us. We need to live this way. That's what he says. And in this manner, I give my judgment. This benefits you. Now, that's a master motivator. Now, it's okay if you're, if you're, if you're rolled tied, but Bruce Pearl, when you watch Bruce Pearl, you're like, that guy knows how to motivate people, right? And when you take your shirt off at the football game and you're the basketball coach, you know what I mean? Like everyone starts you know, going crazy. I'm not trying to offend the anti-Auburn people, but I'm just saying he knows how to motivate people. The apologist said, hey, man, the Macedonians, I was, I've seen it. I mean, in a really bad situation, they were giving joyfully beyond their means. Like your Savior, who impoverished himself to make you eternally wealthy. And also, if you do this, if you just complete what you started, it benefits you. This, this is what you need. Love it. it. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. He's speaking to their hearts. He's saying, don't you remember what you longed for a year ago? Do you remember why you started this? Because you, you wanted to participate. So now finish doing it as well so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. This is a major point tonight. We ourselves and, and, the, and the poorest people we, that we work with, partner with, we all have things to give. We all have assets. We have things to give. They have things to give. The Macedonians were poor, but they contributed. The Corinthians were wealthier. And Paul wasn't saying that they should give beyond their means, even though the Macedonians did. He just said, you should give what you have. For if the readiness is there, verse 12, it's acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Here are the benefits. Touchdowns are better than punts. 
That's part of what Paul's saying, right? Wins are better than losses, and they're better than ties. Sorry, that's just how it is. You're about to punt, but you could carry the ball to the end zone, which is better. That's, That's what he's saying. Here's one thing I want to just look here in the middle of the page. Paul, Paul is teaching them to treat the Christians in Jerusalem who are suffering like family. So this is one of the most important things I'll say tonight and maybe this during this project. We are, this whole class is about under, knowing God's heart, knowing what it means to be God's people and thinking well about people who are wrestling with various forms of poverty. And sometimes when we, in a church like this, in a context like ours, when we think about poor people, we think about us and them. It's really important that we don't do that. Because what Paul was doing to the Gentile Christians in Corinth and in Berea and uh, Antioch and other places is telling them to, he was teaching them to treat the poor Christians in Jerusalem like family. Not us and them, us the wealthy and them the poor, but us and us. Does that make sense? It was a huge eye-opener to me when my dad started taking me to the poorest neighborhood in Chattanooga, and I got to know inner-city widows. And when I met Maddie Young, and I realized I'd... I can't imagine knowing how to pray like this woman knows how to pray. She was one of the poorest women in the city and a spiritual giant. She was like a spiritual mother to me. So it's just, it's important when we think about poverty in our city, just that we remember a lot of the poorest people in our city are already our siblings in Christ Jesus. They go to church. You should, I, I want you to see how well they honor their pastors. It's amazing. It's wonderful. Y'all are awesome. Anyway, that's supposed to be funnier than that. Okay, all right. Um, there you go. That's it. That's it. Okay. Um, we have family beyond our walls. Paul's saying here, take turns meeting family needs. Meet needs now out of our abundance, but next time, who knows? Here's an example. It's, it's very possible that in 10 years from now, 15 years from now, even in Birmingham, that to be a faithful pastor means you'll lose lots of benefits you have right now and maybe you go to jail. That could happen. I mean, you know, there's things happening in our culture that are like that, right? There, there, there are a lot of Christians in North America that have learned how to be faithful disciples in poverty and on the margins, And so one reason it's good for us to go and see them and think about their needs is we'll learn strengths and disciplines that they've learned that that they needed to learn that we didn't need to learn. Because we've been faithful Christians and disciples with a lot of power and a lot of comfort, more centered in culture, and they've been faithful disciples more marginal in culture. And there's an interesting history about all that, but... That's another, that's another topic. Okay, so let's keep going. Look at uh, a summary of 8.16 through chapter 9, verse 5. Is uh, Paul gets into the wisdom of doing significant projects. So a big thing here is he's, there's some teaching in here about having trusted partners. 
So Paul does stuff with Titus. Paul does stuff with Timothy. Paul's got different churches. Um, A big focus is it's all for God's glory. This is the part I'm skipping, but you can read it. And it's about making concrete plans and following through with them. So that's a big part of that section um, that I'm not reading. But part of what happens here, just try to picture this for a minute. Part of what happens here is people like Paul and Titus deal with leaders in churches in different places, and they're getting this collection, and they're sending the collection from their churches to the Christians in Jerusalem through trusted leaders. There's nowhere where Paul says, hey, I want all of you in Ephesus to go on a big trip back to Jerusalem and do a lot of things in a culture that you completely don't understand. But it is important that you contribute. They actually have good leaders over there. They have really good leaders there. So we're going to contribute what we do have through our leaders to their leaders because that's going to be used well in their context. You see that all through the New Testament. So that's interesting. And that that has bearing on our team project. Um, And then here's more motivation, believe it or not. In chapter 9, verse 6 through 15, Oh, by the way, just think about the wisdom of that. So imagine that um, this group wanted to uh, send a gift from our class on Wednesday nights um, to Alton Hardy and the uh, Urban Hope Community Church. Uh, Would you guys object if we sent it through Phyllis Hamm and John Shank? Like, would y'all be like, oh, that's a really bad plan? No, everybody like, well, that makes a lot of sense because they're trusted partners, and if we sent it through like Josh and Ashley, who were already like deeply connected to them, we'd be like, oh, that makes perfect sense. We, 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 we trust Josh. He's one of our pastors. We trust Ashley, you know, and we know there's relationships there. So it just, that's how they were thinking, right? They were, they were gathering resources together, giving them to trusted partners and sending them to leaders already in place in cultures that were different than theirs. Okay, keep going. So here's 9.16-15. Paul sums up. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Sowing here is a metaphor for being generous and helping meet the needs of others. In this context, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. I mean, you, I almost want you to do this. Rewrite that phrase, God loves a cheerful giver. Just rewrite it, but you can't use those words. You can use the word God. So just rewrite it. Right now, get your pen out. God loves a cheerful giver. And then a few, a few of us will shout out our answers. All right, anybody got one they want to share? Say it really loud. God appreciates a generous person. Thank you, Samuel. Well, give me another one. Very good. God wants us to enjoy giving. Yeah. Give me another one. Thank you, Gary. God loves an eager giver. Yes. 
Anything else? Thank you, John. Anything? Anyone else? Yes. Say that first part again. Oh, John to bless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. God, Paul's saying here, God cherishes, he delights in people who are actually doing generous things. Cheerfully, right? People, God delights in glad, generous people. That's wonderful. That's just great. <laughs> if you're thankful for your salvation and you want to honor God and give him joy, well, God delights in, he loves cheerful givers. It, that's pretty great. Okay, super. Here we go. Um, but he's not done motivating. Okay. Where was I? Catch up, catch up. Okay, yes, each, verse 7, God loves cheerful giver. Verse 8, and... God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Shaboom! I mean, I, I, think, Paul is, I think Paul wants you to, not in the negative way, I think, I think Paul was motivating people to test that out. Don't never put God to the test. But like, you know, Let's just let that have a little traction. That's a really strong motivation. And then he quotes Psalm 112, verse 9. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. So <clears throat> I think everyone in this room knows I strongly believe in the doctrine of justification by faith and that Christ is our righteousness. If you believe in Jesus, your sins do not count against you. All your debts are canceled. Um, he's satisfied the wrath of God on your behalf, and you're totally forgiven. And all of his righteous obedience counts for you, and you are righteous. You have the status of righteous, righteousness in God's eyes, totally, perfectly in Christ. But I just want you to know that's not the only way the Bible uses the word righteous. It just isn't. It doesn't exhaust it. And this is a different use of that word. His righteousness endures forever. This is saying there are things that we do saved by grace that are right and God really likes them. And that use of righteousness is all through the Bible. And it, it doesn't undermine justification by faith at all. Justified people by grace love to do what is right. And God loves to bless things that are done right. That's, there's no contradiction there with justification by faith whatsoever, right? It's all grace, and God loves it when we do what's right. Matter of fact, if you've been made right status-wise by grace by God, you become hungry to see righteousness spread to all kinds of people in all kinds of places. If God has justified you by his grace, you care more about justice, not less. That's just a, a natural response to someone who's been justified, declared righteous by the alien gift of righteousness from God. Okay, <clears throat> he's not done. Verse 10, he, he, he wants to nail it down. <laughs> he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, that's Isaiah 55, 10, will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness, that's Hosea 10, 12, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce 
thanksgiving to God. All right, now take your pencil and rewrite verse 10 and 11. Just summarize it in the, in the, in the briefest economy of words you can. All right, anybody want to just edify us by restating those words? What did Paul just say? Where do the, where do the resources that you're going to sow, where do they really come from? God himself has given you everything you have. And one simple way to restate this is God who's been really generous to you is going to keep being generous to you, and he wants to supply you to be more generous. Right? Isn't that what Paul just said? You don't have anything that doesn't belong to God. He's given it to you. He is encouraging you to be generous, and he's going to give you more to be more generous. It's wonderful. <laughs> I wonder if you believe it. Okay, then I, mean, I left you some fill, fill in the blanks at the bottom <clears throat> so you could have fun. Um, are you, finish the sentence. You cannot what? Am I guess at it? That's it. It's obvious, isn't it? You can't outgive, outgive God. Obvious, obvious. I wonder if we have any accomplished investors in the room. The ROI from 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is beyond measure. The ROI of 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is not only beyond measure, it's beyond time. It comes from God, it goes to God's purposes, and it bounces back to the glory of God. So, in result, <clears throat> for the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints. I thought that was this whole thing was about. Nope. <clears throat> but is also overflowing in many thanksgiving to God. By their approval of the service, when the Jewish Christians receive it, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. I mean, Paul has said grace 80 times in these two chapters. He said two eight and uh, chapter 8, verse 9, about the, the gospel of Jesus. And now he's like, hey, that's the whole thing. This all flows out of your confession of the good news about Jesus and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon y'all. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Okay, Paul's aims. going to hit this real fast so you can go to your teams tonight. One, one of Paul's aims here is poverty alleviation. Right? There are people that got disinherited and are poor and they're Christians and they're in Jerusalem and, God, and Paul wants them to be alleviated. Another aim is racial and cultural reconciliation within the broader church. It's the Gentile churches who are taking a gift to alleviate the need of their siblings who are Jewish Christians. In general, the Gentile Christians were happy 
to be in. And the Jewish Christians were like, well, you're kind of in. They were the more ordinary ones, more or less. And Paul here is, try, is trying to reconcile those relationships through this gift. So it's poverty alleviation, it's racial reconciliation, cultural reconciliation. And then look at this. He's, his aim, he's, he's generating free and unified participation among the Corinthians with all these other churches. Isn't that great? I mean, Paul and Titus and Timothy... They're, they're, they're so excited that there's money coming in from, from Philippi and Berea and Thessaloniki and Corinth. Right? It's, just, it's, it's all the churches working together to accomplish a goal. It's participation. And, of course, it magnifies the gospel because it's a mirror of the gospel. And it all redounds to the gratitude and the glory of God. All right, so I got a note. I have a little letter to all four teams for you break off, and you have a little less time than normal. But Josh warned you two weeks ago it would be like this. We're going to teach a little more here at the end because we're almost done. Actually, we are done. After this, it's all your reports. So you got some more homework to do. But I I wrote you a letter, and there's a couple of last-minute edits, so you've got to pay attention as I read it. Team one, thank you for your diligent study of sobering realities we could easily ignore. We are all eager to learn from you. When you teach us about various forms of poverty in our region, please don't let us forget that many of our poorest neighbors are also our brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. Remind us that we are not thinking in us-them categories. For these siblings of ours are already us in Christ Jesus. Team two, thank you for taking the time to learn from Alton Hardy and his team. When you teach us about Urban Hope's model, for our sake, safeguard their vision. Tell us how to pray for them and help us see good and bad ways we could work alongside them so we don't do the bad ones. Remind us that prayer and generosity wrap together are transformative by the grace and the plan of God. Team three, I apologize. Team three, our social impact entrepreneurs, you wild and woolly wanderers. Thank you for stretching yourselves and straining in new ways. Please forgive me for not giving you better direction. It is wonderfully sufficient if each of you decides to do one new thing to serve the poor. We are family, and we will learn from your experience. It's okay to forge alliances and dream up something bigger, but any new practice, any new habit, any new policy or action in your field of expertise or related field of expertise on behalf of the poor will change you and therefore change us. When you aim for transformation rather than transactions, we will grow with you by God's promised grace. Team four, our structural engineers, architects, Thank you for your diligence and scratching in the dark. Also my fault. Be patient with yourselves. Your enormous task is for the sake of the whole diaconate and our whole church and her external mission. We don't need you to reinvent the wheel by March 23rd. Please don't try to do that. We are eager to follow you as you patiently learn best practices and lead us prayerfully along paths of true righteousness and God-honoring justice. Second Corinthians is largely about the grace of God showing up in power in Paul's weakness. 
were right up against my weaknesses. This is what I can do. I can open God's word and show you what God loves and what he desires for his people. But I'm not the practical figure out how we're going to do all the steps person. That's why we're a team. Let me pray and we'll go to our teams. Oh, Lord Jesus, overcome our weaknesses. Show us the strengths you've given us and help us steward them well for your name's sake. For people suffering from all kinds of poverty that are our neighbors, some of them very near to us, especially those who are of the household of faith, and also that their neighbors might see a picture of your heart and come to be our siblings as well. Help us tonight. Grant us wisdom in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, y'all, team one's over there, is that right? Team one, the corner. Actually, y'all, y'all that corner again?